Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Over the past decade or so, researchers have devoted a considerable amount of attention to looking at how charter schools are helping or hindering the students who enroll in them. More recently, though, researchers have turned attention to another question that's been bubbling beneath the surface since the very first charter school opened its doors. What does the expansion of the charter school sector mean for students who don't enroll in them, for students who stay in traditional public schools? To put it more bluntly, are charter schools hurting traditional public schools? Today on the report card, I asked two experts to weigh in. Mark Weber and Marcus Winters. Mark Weber is the special analyst for education policy with the New Jersey Policy Perspective, a lecturer at Rutgers University's Graduate School of Education, and a music teacher in Warren Township, New Jersey. He's the author of a recent Fordham Institute report titled Robbers or Victims, Charter Schools and District Finances. And Marcus Winters is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and an associate professor at Boston University. Marcus is the author of numerous papers and reports on charters, including a June 2020 Manhattan Institute report with the rather straightforward title, Do Charter Schools Harm Traditional Public Schools? Mark, Marcus, thanks for coming on the report card. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's do a little table setting before we get into the meat of this issue. Charter schools get quite a bit of attention from politicians and education advocacy organizations these days, so much so that it can seem like charters have always been part of the American schooling tradition. But in the grand scheme of things, charters really haven't been around for that long. So I think it would be helpful to do a quick review. Um, Mark, maybe we could start out with you. What is a charter school? A charter school is a publicly financed school that essentially operates outside of what we would term a traditional school district. A, A school district being a geographic zone where anybody who resides within that zone attends schools within that system. Attached to that is the idea that that boundary becomes the tax base from which that school system will draw its revenues from, at least at the uh, local level. We know that schools, about 90% of the funding in the aggregate for schools come from either the state or the locality. That varies according to district, it varies according to state, but local revenues are are a big part of this. Uh, The charter school operates independently of that system. It may be drawing its revenues from the same place as the local district. It may be funded directly by the state. And that really has to do with the uh, uh, state policy context. So charters basically allow kids in traditional public schools a choice of another school. So that can affect their base. But what's the big idea behind charters? I think the theory behind chartering was that if we took schools away from two primary factors, the first being the elected school board or the appointed school board, which is a government entity, and then also took them away from collective bargaining agreements, which generally are attached to teachers unions, then we would find some sort of innovation. There would be some sort of uh, insight into how we could make schools more effective or how we could make them more efficient. 
one of the big questions I think that we have, because we've had charter schools now for several decades, one of the big questions that we have to stop and ask is, have we seen innovation? Have we seen things taking place that we can truly say are unique? From my perspective, it's very hard to see that. Um, I, I think in many cases, uh, while there might be a few curricular differences or maybe a few pedagogical differences, in most cases, I don't think we've really seen much of a difference aside from the governance uh, uh, point of view. And the question then becomes, how does that affect both student outcomes? And then how does it affect the efficiency of the school, how well they use the money that they are allotted. Sure. So Marcus, I want to get you in here, but just for a little more table setting, you know, they've been around for what, 25 years or so, just from a size perspective uh, in the nation, how many students are attending charter schools and what kind of growth have we seen recently? So I don't know the total number of, of students in charter schools. I'd say that we've, we've seen dramatic expansion of charter schools since kind of the early 2000s and, and through now. Um, one of the difficulties of the charter school conversation is that they're so different from place to place, right? So the thing that they have in common is they operate uh, independently of, of the local school district, though even in some places, all the charters are, are chartered by the district itself. So um, there's, there's even some district involvement there. But the amount of expansion that you've seen um, in, in certain cities relative to others, you know, across, across the U.S., the types of charter schools that are operating um, in, in one place or another um, are so different from each other that we often talk about charter schools as one giant national reform when they're really a, a large national idea, but with pockets of, of very specific sectors. Sure, that makes sense. So there's a lot of charges against charter schools. Mark, for, for charter skeptics, what are the charges that they usually level and who are the typical plaintiffs that bring that case? Uh, I don't know if I could speak to a plaintiff being typical uh, in this, but I do think that there is a, a general narrative that has grown up around charter schools pro and con. The pro narrative being that, again, they are potentially laboratories for innovation, that they are places that are free from regulations that are stifling schools and that make them less effective than they could be. The con side of it, the, the charter skeptic side, would say that we're not seeing innovation. We're seeing a lot of uh, self-serving activity on the part of far too many charter schools, that in fact, there are all sorts of activities related to the growth and the establishment of charter schools that are against the interests both of students and the interests of, of taxpayers. And, and uh, I think we've seen a lot of individual cases, for example, of waste and fraud and abuse in charter schools that is, is increasingly documented. But then the other criticism and the one that I was I have been looking at more specifically is this idea that as the charter sector grows, there is a pernicious effect on the public district schools that, that essentially act as the de facto hosts of these schools. And along those lines uh, would be criticisms, and sometimes I think these are quite fair, that you're getting different populations of students in charter schools as opposed to host uh, uh, schools, and therefore 
the students who have more of a special education need or who do not speak English at home, those tend to be concentrated more in the public district schools. And the thing that I become more specifically interested in is this idea of a financial burden that is placed on the host district, that when a charter school comes in, it is taking money out of the public system and putting it into a separate redundant system. And this could be a problem both, again, for the students who are enrolled in the public schools, but also a problem for taxpayers in general who may not have their best interests served by having these redundant systems in place. Sure. So certainly we've seen some black eyes for some charter operators that can can raise an eyebrow. But Marcus, while Mark was talking about sort of the financial implications, which we're going to jump right into in a, in a minute, I often hear this term cream skimming talked about with charters. And that's not always referring to, you know, sort of skimming finances. What's the cream skimming argument against charters? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly, when we think about the that kind of case against charter schools, I mean, in some places, the case is about they might be in an area that just has ineffective charter schools. That's a fair case about, or is it good for anyone to go there? But more broadly, it's the case of, does it increase in the charter sector harm kids who stay in the public school system? And I think that can go two ways. So cream skimming that, that you're describing here is our charters taking um, when they when they come into an area, do they attract kind of the the best students and the most active parents with, within an area and remove them from the public school system? And if and if they do that, is that going to harm uh, the the local public school system? There's also the issue of, of the financial issue that that Mark is bringing up here about as those students leave, are they also taking with them financial resources that that makes it more difficult for the public school system to provide an education to the students who are left. Logical. So, Mark, you you titled your report, Robbers are Victims. So what's the case for charters being robbers? Well, let me first say, uh, when you write a report for a think tank, you very rarely get to title it. I hear you, brother. Uh, so uh, I, I, I won't uh, plead guilty to having titled this one, although I, I, I could certainly live with it. Uh, the idea behind being, for, for lack of a better term, a robber is that because students are moving out of the schools, that the schools themselves have fewer resources that are available to them. In many states, the state financing system is based on the number of students that you enroll. And then uh, local finance may or may not pass through the local district to the charter, and that may pass through based on what the number of students who are enrolling in the charters may be. The, the question then becomes, are in fact the charter schools disproportionately taking resources away? The other side, the the victim uh, side, I, I guess you would say, would be that charter schools may not be getting the same amount of per pupil revenue that the district school is getting, and therefore something is unfair. the The problem with this entire dialogue, from my point of view, is that it leaves out the idea that students do not cost the same amount to educate. Different students require different amounts of resources in order 
to have an equal educational opportunity. I don't think anybody would argue, for example, that a student who say was visually impaired is not going to require more resources than a student who is not. It's just logical that we would think along those lines. It, it makes sense that a student who does not speak English at home needs more interventions and therefore more resources in order to have an equal educational opportunity than a student who does speak at home. The question becomes, are there such differences between the charter school population and the district school population that we have accurately figured out how much more the students in one need than the students at, at, at another. And I wanna be very clear about something. The report that I just did does not provide that answer. This is an ongoing conversation, but I'm, I'm hoping that maybe it provides a framework to begin addressing some of these questions. Sure, I mean, as Marcus said, the charter sector isn't one homogenous sector that works the same way from one place to another. And if I've got this right, that has to do with the way students apply to schools, the way schools are run, and the way schools are funded. So there's a lot to untangle to get to these answers. So we've touched on sort of two of these, uh, you know, charges, if you'd like, or, or problems that could come up with charters. One sort of the cream skimming that has more academic outcomes and the other that uh, might be thought of in the robbers or victims framework that uh, think tanks like to title things as, and that's more to do with finances. So let's take a, a little closer look at these. Uh, I'd like to start with the academic section. Marcus, you recently wrote a report in which you looked at the effects of charter school expansion and what those have on traditional public schools test scores. Can you uh, give me a thumbnail of your study starting at what research question were you trying to answer? Yeah, sure. So that paper that um, that study I did for the Manhattan Institute, which was using data from the Stanford Education Data Archive. So it was it was taking advantage of now we kind of have a national look of test scores across the country over a long period of time. What it did was it allowed us kind of a first kind of large scale look at, at kind of district level test scores over a long period of time. And what I was doing was taking advantage of that to really just ask a very descriptive question, right? So I, bet, I don't claim this paper as a causal result, but I think we have a lot of other papers that, that do this as well. Um, and just essentially ask the question that, well, look, if it's the case that expansive charter sectors hurt traditional public schools, like harm their ability to, to educate the students that, that, that stay in traditional public schools, then over a substantial period of time, we should probably have seen that the places that had dramatic charter expansion in the kind of you know, 2010s, after several years, probably should look like they're not doing as well um, as other places that, that, that didn't have similar expansion. And what I showed essentially was that there's really no meaningful relationship between the amount of charter school competition and growth that uh, an area had, like a, a city or, or a district had, you know, several years ago, relative to how well they're performing. I think we looked out about 10 years after that. So the idea was, was really to address that large question that's been looked at at a much more micro level in the academic literature and, and look at that more on the descriptive level of if it's the case that charter school expansion harms public schools, why aren't we seeing that um, in, in overall, just overall test scores? Now, I'll say that descriptive finding matches up pretty well 
with the, the, the much more causally focused econometric findings that we see. Um, so several papers, now the, the, the papers don't find uniform results, but I think a fair read of the existing evidence is that on average expanding charter schools um, has either no real effect on the performance of students who remain in traditional public schools, or it has a very small positive effect. It's interesting because it means kind of the, the debates early on in the charter wars, both sides were wrong, um, is, is my read of the research, right? The, the side that said that um, expanding charter schools was going to dramatically harm kids who stay in traditional public schools, we just haven't really seen that consistently in the data. On the other hand, the idea that choice is a panacea, and as you increase charter school competition, you're also going to make the public schools just dramatically better as they, as they compete for students, we haven't really seen that either. Marcus, let me see if I can repeat back what I've heard. You basically looked if there was a disproportionate growth in the charter sector in one area, if down the line you saw traditional public schools test scores sort of tanking based on the idea that the more advantaged or somehow better scoring students would just migrate to the charter schools. And you're saying that you didn't really find that. But neither did you find the fact that charters lift all boats. Is that right? Yeah, descriptively, that's what we were finding. Essentially, there's not much relationship at all between the amount of competition public schools face from charter schools and their average test scores several years later. So, Mark, let's shift to district finances, which is what you've been focused on. Now, as we talked about a few minutes ago, it seems pretty intuitive that if you have fewer students that enroll in a district's traditional public schools, well, they're going to get less money because they're funded on a per pupil basis. And so you may have actually less resources to educate students who stay behind. So your Fordham report tests that logic. Can you tell me how you went about that? Like Marcus's study, this is descriptive. And so we can't say that the changes in district finance are necessarily being caused by charter schools, but there is an interesting correlation. And what I was looking at was the per pupil spending and the per pupil revenue uh, from districts that saw an increase in charter uh, proliferation. And what I found was that the per pupil spending was actually increasing as you got more charter schools in. Now, this is sort of counter to a narrative that has been going on for a while that has come from charter critics who have, in some cases, made the argument that there's been a disproportionate drawing of, of resources away from the school. I, I want to be cautious though about how I've I've already seen people, I hate to use the word, but I, I can't think of another one, weaponize uh, a study like this. On the one hand, I've seen- I've never seen that happen before, Mark. I've never seen a weapon uh, weaponized study. It's a brand new thing, isn't it? Especially <laughs> in education policy where the, uh, the, the uh, arguments are just so calm, uh, uh, for lack of a better word. Anyway, yeah, the, the, if you're a charter supporter, you look at this and say, well, th this must mean that the districts are fine. This must mean that if we are seeing a per pupil increase, then at the very least, there's no harm. Uh, no, that's not accurate because what might be going on, and in fact, I think we found clues in, that this is going on, is that districts have fixed costs. In other words, 
If you're a school district and you lose some of your enrollment, you cannot perfectly cut your spending to match that amount of enrollment. If you lose a few kids, you aren't going to close down, you know, a, a tenth of your building and and only have nine tenths of a principal. It doesn't work that way. And I do think that charter supporters too often have relied on this narrative that money follows the student. It doesn't work that way. We are we are talking about something that's systemic. If we're talking about public schools, we're talking about a system that is there to provide education for students, no matter when they uh, come in, no matter what their grade level may be. And that requires certain fixed costs. And the, the evidence that we found of this is that I divided up roughly the spending into support spending and instructional spending. Instructional spending would be on a classroom teacher, for example, but support spending would be administration or for librarians or for guidance counselors or things like that. It's been long acknowledged in the school finance literature that some uh, expenditures are able to be more what economists call elastic, are able to respond to enrollment losses better than some other uh, expenditures. I think we found some evidence here that that is what's going on with charter schools. And then that raises to my mind an important question. Are we really prepared to spend this extra money because that's what it's coming down to in the support of offering choice when we're not even sure what the overall effect of, of offering these choices should be. And so I, uh, again, I see people kind of using this finding to uphold their own particular predilections toward charter schools. I would argue that what I'm doing here is raising more questions than I'm answering. And we ought to think carefully about these questions before we just wholesale head right into charter school expansion. Mark, let me try and repeat back what I've heard to you in just an oversimplification. You found that per pupil expenditures in traditional public schools where charters had increased had, if anything, gone up a little bit, maybe, but that that is not a slam dunk case because the per pupil doesn't necessarily take care of all the fixed costs that especially a large district has still got to manage moving forward not only you know to keep up legacy programs but to serve the students that they continue to serve is that fair yeah i think that that's a fair characterization again you know in some rare cases like new orleans we we've had places that have gone to you know full charterization or pretty close to it but in most places in the country i don't think e- even charter supporters have been calling for that And one of the questions that we have to ask is what is going on to keep the whole system as effective, as efficient as it can be? If we're seeing that there is a per pupil increase within district schools with charter proliferation, then we ought to stop and take a look at this and see see if we can figure out what's going on. So let me ask you one question that seems to address the the counterintuitive part to this finding. If you had come on and said, yeah, I did this study and the per pupil spending in traditional public schools doesn't really go down, I'd say, okay, that's fair. That sounds like we got fair funding formulas or something like that. But when you say it goes up, I'm just trying to figure out 
how that mechanism might work. Is it just because they have fewer children and they're still paying for the same number of teachers? I mean, I could see that would be a higher per pupil dollar, but do you have any insight behind sort of the mechanism? And again, this is, we're just keeping this on those per pupil dollar figures. Sure. Well, let's take the spending first. I think what you just said is accurate. If you have the same number of staff, and it's not necessarily teachers here again, I want to be clear about that. It, it more likely is the staff that cannot be pared down in order to more closely align with the enrollment decreases. Then, yeah, that could in fact increase the uh, per pupil spending. On the revenue side, we found something interesting. It tends to be that local revenue goes up more than state revenue, which may be an indication, may be an indication that the local tax levies do not change even if charter schools are getting funding from some other source, like say directly from the state. So if the local levies remain the same, but the number of students in the school actually decreases, then you're gonna see uh, the local revenue per pupil rise. Might be what's going on. I, I just have to add one thing in general because I know I'm saying may and might and so on. We are at the mercy of federal data that ain't great. And if there's one thing that I really wish we could do, particularly if we're going to have a serious conversation about charter schools, it's to get that data better. Let, let's really get in there, set some standards for how we show uh, the flows of revenue, how the spending comes out, it would certainly inform this conversation uh, uh, much better than we have, uh, you know, based on the revenue, uh, the data, I should say, that we have now. And for that reason, I think the future of this stuff is going to be more in looking at state by state cases and seeing what's happening, particularly because states are particular policy environments. Things are very different in New Jersey than they are in California, than they are in Michigan. So uh, hopefully that's something that that follows from uh, this as well. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, Mark, I've never met an academic who said, you know, this data is really too high quality and too detailed. So, uh, but, but, I, but I take your point. <laughs> Marcus, what do you make of, of what Mark's findings were and, and if you have any insights on there, but also how these two findings from these two studies mesh or, or don't mesh? So I, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting look at the data. I also think that um, I, I, don't find that, I don't find the result especially surprising because I, I think it matches up with, with, with some other findings that we've, we've had, for example, in Massachusetts and, and in New York and, 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 and some other places. I also think, and, and I'll just add to, to Mark's description on some of the mechanisms here, and, and this is mentioned in his report as well, but uh, some areas have like very clear hold harmless provisions um, in there. So uh, in Massachusetts, for instance, when, when a student leaves for a charter school, it's, it's, it's written into the law that the public school keeps some of the student funding that would have gone with them, which is going to naturally kind of increase per pupil expenditures within there. So I, I think that's right, that there's a lot of different mechanisms here. And I 100% agree. And one of the things I've been arguing for years, I agree with Mark here, that charter conversations are much more 
productive when they're when they look inside the the specific states or even in, in, in specific localities because the charter sectors they operate obviously like under such different rules from from place to place and and also they have the the type of charter school that's that's in an area so different from each other from place to place as well the other thing I think I'd say about the findings and kind of going into the the, the conversation about the the kind of weaponizing of this study, um, which you know the, the is is definitely something that that, that comes with, with the territory of, of all these papers. I mean, I do think, for, from my perspective, I think that the finance issue is really important, and and I'm I'm really interested in in, in the findings and 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 in the report. For me, it's it's secondary a little bit in that if we found that um, let's say we let's let's say we, there was evidence that charter schools overall were were leading to financial harms for for district schools, but we continued to find that regardless, um, charter expansion was either having no effect on on student learning within the public schools or, or even a slight positive effect. For me, the finance issue is is really a mechanism to get to the to the achievement issue, I guess. So um, in, in that case, I think the the first order concern is how well the public school effectiveness, and I think that using the study as a debate to say charters are good or bad because because funding uh, changes uh, within the public system, I, I think is the wrong way to look at it. I think it's it's a way to look at what's going on within the charter sector, but overall the impact that the charter sector is having has much more to do with student achievement than, than it does on, on school finances. Yeah, that's an interesting angle on that. Mark, I wonder what you make of that. I mean, let's say the, the findings were a little bit pushing hard one way or another. What would you say about what that means for whether we should keep encouraging charter school growth or whether maybe we need to adjust the funding formulas um, associated with it? Well, let, let's talk about the student achievement first, because I, I do think that that's important. You know, Marcus is up in Boston, and a lot of the research has been done up there by uh, economists, many based at MIT, and they've been using uh, uh, data there. And they come up with these natural experiments, and they have a lot of what I would call strong internal validity. It's a big, fancy term that researchers use to say that there is a, a plausible natural experiment and whatever effects we can find, we can attribute to whatever the treatment is. But then I look at that and I say, well, what is the real treatment? I ask people, what do you mean by a no excuse charter school? Well, I, I'm talking about a school that uh, sets high expectations for kids. Well, have you really gauged whether those expectations are higher than the counterfactual school? And is that what we're really talking about? The more that I look into these no excuses kind of schools, the more that I find it's actually not a, a big mystery. These schools tend to have longer days, they tend to have longer years, they tend to have one-on-one -on -one tutoring, and they tend to have a curriculum that focuses on improving test scores. Given all of those things, it would be surprising to me that they weren't actually showing some sort of an effect. They also have a self-selected student population. Um, so all of that is great. But first of all, what's the cost of getting that? The cost of having these longer school days and these longer school years. Uh, I've looked very carefully at Newark, uh, New Jersey, which has a big charter sector for this. They have a faculty that is young and inexperienced. They pay them more 
than they would make in a public school. And for that extra pay, they are expected to work longer days and longer years. Is it reasonable to think that that can be scaled up? I would argue that there it's problematic to think about that. But furthermore, if these schools are getting what they get because of this staffing model that leads to a resource advantage, why can't we do this for all schools? Why do we have to take these schools and move them to a, a separate governance system just to get this resource ad, ad, advantage? So uh, I feel like the conversation about academics has has to become a little broader. I'd say one other thing about this as a music teacher, if the price to be paid for getting higher test scores is to narrow the curriculum. And I think we've got some some evidence that that is the case. Then I I wonder whether we're talking about schools that are giving the kind of broad and rich curriculum that I believe all kids need. So this is a bigger question. Specifically, though, as to do with the finances, I think we need to step back and think, what is the effect on the entire system? It can't just be What's the effect on these schools? What's the effect on these schools? What is the the total effect for the system? And are we putting the resources where they need to be to to do the most good and to help the the most kids? And I think we have to begin thinking about the question in in those terms. So, I mean, I would agree with that. I I agree with a a lot of the points you have there. I mean, so first I'd say on the no excuses issue, I mean, the the aspects of the no excuses charters that you're pointing out here that that you think is driving the effects, I think in the evidence we're seeing that those are in fact the parts of the no excuse charters that are are having the effect, right? So um, some of that work from from the MIT team, also uh, work by Roland Fryer in in Texas, I believe in some other places, has, has really found that what's driving the no excuses effect are in particular, those aspects of frequent feedback to teachers, also the longer school days, longer school years, and the like. And in fact, uh, and uh, Fryer has a paper where they worked, I believe it was with Houston, but it was several schools in a district in, in Texas where they brought some of those components into a public school setting and found similar positive effects happen there. So I, I 100% agree that, and I also agree with a point that you made earlier, that the experimentation and innovation in the charter sector is probably less than a lot of people were hoping on going in. At the same time, I think we've learned that some things have been effective for improving student outcomes, and and we haven't been bringing those those things into the public sector as as much as I think we should. I do think in in most places that I'm aware, and I don't know the the New York specific context about uh, teacher salaries, and I'll say I have a recent paper studying the effect of of attending charter schools in Newark, where we, we find similar actually to Boston, very large positive effects for for students as measured by test scores, and those effects are largely driven by kids going to the they really don't want to be called no excuses schools, but uh, Kip and Uncommon are, are, are the, the two charter networks that, that are driving those effects. In most places, so in Massachusetts and most other places that I'm aware, charter school teachers are, are paid substantially lower salaries than, than our traditional public school teachers. So in fact, uh, so Jesse Bruin and Scott Imberman and I have a, a recent MBER working paper where we look at, in Massachusetts, we look at the relationship between teacher quality and attrition in the in public schools and charter schools. And 
um, one of the things that we show is that charter schools, so, and I think this, they do, they bring in, they, they have a less experienced teaching workforce. They pay them substantially lower salaries than, than the public school system does. And in Massachusetts, this is a place that prior research, the MIT team has found large positive effects from attending the charters. What we found was that charter schools lose disproportionately their very best teachers and their very worst teachers. But the other thing that we found was when their worst teachers leave the charter sector, they tend to just leave teaching, at least teaching in Massachusetts. So they're no longer in public schools and they're no longer in charter schools in Massachusetts. When the really effective teachers leave charter schools, at least in Massachusetts, it's much more common for them to move into a teaching position within the traditional public school system. So we actually, we, we, we come up with a model to potentially explain these results. We call it the model of regulatory arbitrage, where the idea is that it, it seems to be, at least in part, what's going on, at least in Massachusetts, is that charter schools aren't required to hire certified teachers, but they pay a lower wage. So what they do is they kind of serve as a way for people who might be interested in teaching, but don't want to go through the, the process of getting a license. Um, they can give teaching a try in the charter school. Those who are ineffective are kind of filtered out of the system by the charter schools. And those who are really effective end up leaving, getting a license anyway, and then moving into the higher paying public school sector. Now, whether that holds in places outside of Massachusetts, again, goes to that uh, the thing we were talking about, that these sectors are really different from place to place. But at least as far as the salaries are concerned, my, my understanding at least has always been that in most places, charter schools are paying much lower salaries for their teachers. Well, it, again, I would, I would limit this to this particular no excuses model, particularly attached to the large national or regional uh, um, uh, charter management organizations. So uncommon, KIPP, uh, places like that. I will say also about Boston, Boston is a thing unto itself. You've got, uh, you can't throw a, a rock in Boston and not have it hit a college. So you've got this unusually well-educated young population that may be more amenable toward uh, becoming a teacher. But having said that, I just had a short report come out at the New Jersey policy perspective about Camden, New Jersey. Camden has a very large charter sector. It's been growing over the last two decades. One of the things that I found was that the teaching core in Camden, Camden is a predominantly black city. It used to be a majority of the teachers in Camden were black and it is switched. And now the majority are white. And while there's been some change within the district, most of that change can be attributed to charter school growth. These are the sorts of things that I would argue matter and can't be captured in test scores, can't be captured in uh, effect sizes based on test scores. The other thing, too, is that, you know, Marcus, I know, I know your paper uh, from Newark well. And one of the, the things that, again, it's, it, it's a very clever study in terms of it's using the lottery to set up this kind of uh, internal validity that, that it actually creates a real experiment. But again, the question for me becomes, how applicable is this toward expanding the sector? In Newark, it's very clear what the charter schools are, what they expect. You know, Is there a particular kind of kid who is going to do well at that charter school as opposed to a kind of kid who would be better in a different sort of setting? And then, then we're getting into a real powerful and a real deep question. If we're going to have this redundant set of schools, 
are we okay with it just being accessible to this one type of kid? Or should we be compelling these charter schools to take all kinds of kids? And is that really in the, the best interest of, of the entire system? I know that like I've talked with the KIPP people in Newark and they've talked about expanding their programming for special education students, doing more of that because many of the special education students can't get the services that they need in the charters. Is that something that we really want to pursue? Would that be in the best interest of taxpayers to divide this up and instead of bringing the resources together into one common point, particularly for kids who have profound special education needs. These are the questions that I'm afraid get lost in, again, these kind of weaponized discussions about charter school expansion. And I think we've got to hit the point where we have to have a more substantive and serious conversation about these things. Let's zoom back out and revisit the the top level question posed at the start of the episode, because it's true that the the local variation and the external validity of particular findings are are limited. The the two studies that you did may not be able to zero down into fine-grained causal findings, but they're pretty broad. So they give us a different kind of purchase on the question, are charter schools hurting traditional public schools? And Mark, I know we don't have a complete answer to that, but what do you think your paper helps us understand about that big picture question? I I would hope that we can take another look at this and at least begin to explore the idea that there are subtleties here that can't be answered in simple kind of binary questions. Are, are, Are they harming? Are they not harming? It's complicated. I do think that, however, that if I'm going to take away anything from this, it's the idea that I don't think we can just automatically assume that uh, expanding charter schools is going to be fiscally neutral. Something is going on here. Something is happening. The mechanism, I, I absolutely agree with Marcus, the mechanism for that is going to change from state to state, from region to region, and we should be drilling down into more concrete explorations of particular areas. However, we've seen enough instances where there has been real harm. I think that like Chester, Pennsylvania, there has been a real harm done to that district by the expansion of charter schools in the way that the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania allowed them to expand. We've got to think about these things as as we're making policy. So one thing that I, I guess I would take away from this is, again, this idea of fixed costs of there being a, a fiscal price to pay to have a redundant system of schools. And again, is that something that we can justify? I'd also say not unrelated to this paper that it's certainly not something we can justify as long as we allow this sort of really bad actor kind of things that we see in the for-profit sector, in the related third-party transactions, in in some of the really bad things that we've seen in virtual charter schools, that's got to end. And and I think that everybody can agree, no matter what we're going to do going forward, we've got to do something to get a, a better handle on having good authorizing and having good regulation of charter schools. 
Marcus, let me pitch a slightly different question, but essentially the same one, but I'm going to flip it on its head. Again, zooming back out to get to the top level here. When it comes to charters, based on what we're looking at at some of these studies in this conversation, is the juice worth the squeeze? (laughs) That's interesting. Is the juice worth the squeeze? The answer to that question really depends entirely on where you're talking about. And that has to do with, is the charter sector effective or not, is, is I think a first order question. And I think we, we've seen in the research that in some places, the charters are doing really, really well. And in some places, they're really, really not. And the places where they're not effective, I think the answer is probably no, or at least they're unlikely, you know, really helping or hurting anything. In places like Boston, I would argue, I would argue in uh, Newark, in New York City, in other places where we have strong evidence that kids attending the charter schools are really benefiting from it. I think the evidence is, would say, yes, charter schooling has been, has been effective for them and that we, we don't have strong research to suggest that students in the, who remain in the public schools are harmed when, when the charter sector expands. So when the question student achievement, I'd say as long as we're talking about an effective charter school sector, then yes, overall, it's, it's a positive for the overall system and doesn't seem to be leading to harms to kids who don't go to those charter schools. Well, Mark and Marcus, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about these studies. And we'll keep an eye on both the finances and the academic outcomes and all the other sundry things that We'll continue to unfold in the charter sector and keep learning about this maturing education reform movement. Thanks for coming on the report card. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Mark Weber and Marcus Winters. For more on today's topic, you can read Mark Weber's report at FordhamInstitute.org. And you can read more of Marcus's work at Manhattan-Institution.org. Thanks to our producer, Matt Rice. He makes these podcasts possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.